Good morning. How's everybody? Everybody knows today is the first Sunday in Lent. We had an Ash Wednesday service, and we had a wonderful explanation of what that means, so I won't repeat everything that Todd did. For those who missed it, you'll have to play catch-up. But we will talk a little bit about how we're going to approach Lent. From the beginning of time, humans have marked and recorded life through telling stories. I, I'm sorry, I want you to stand for the entire message, and the youth are going to leave us. I can't believe y'all kind of stood standing. Um, okay, so anyway, from the beginning of time, we've had the, the humanities marked stories. And the stories are punctuated by occasions that are significant and milestones that are there along the way. We do this in our individual lives, but also in the meta-story of history. Because our stories shape who we are, we're shaped by the past, by where we are, and then directed toward where we're going. So our future is informed by all that has gone before. In her latest book, Scouting the Divine, Christian author Margaret Feinberg challenges readers to see God in the varied metaphors of Scripture letting him shed light to reveal himself in a fresh way. Now, who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need to feel reconnected with God? Margaret embarked on a unique scouting expedition of her own. She went around the country and she spent time with a shepherd, a farmer, a vintner, and a beekeeper. And she was looking for the parallels of Scripture, not through a theologian's eyes, but through the lens of someone seeking to draw close to God. And she found parallels between what they did in their daily life and the agrarian metaphors of Scripture. She rediscovered God in her experience. She encourages us to scout the divine personally to recapture the knowledge of who God is, his character, and his tremendous love for us. She challenges us to encounter him in a personal way, not through somebody else, not through the pastor, not through your friends, not through your family, but you, one-on-one, -on -one, to be reminded of all God is, of all he has done, and all he has yet to do. So, for Christians, I would like to suggest Lent is a time to trace the unfolding story of salvation, which culminated, of course, in the cross and the resurrection. So we set aside this time annually to focus in an intentional way on the story. Each week, we'll hear lessons tracing the sacred echoes in a rhythm of time that builds until we reach Holy Week and finally Easter's celebration of the resurrection. Lent is designed to provide us 40 days to reflect and examine, examine our lives in the context of the bigger picture and to move to the next level of Christian journey. I want to suggest that as a congregation, we choose today to use this Lenten season to scout the divine to seek God and his call on our lives in a fresh way. Will you pray with me? Father, I give you praise and thanksgiving that the story is real, that you have revealed yourself 
from the beginning of time and that we now have the opportunity to sit at your feet, to seek your face, to hear your word, to receive our marching orders, to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be the people of God you have called us to be. Reveal yourself, we pray, this season and this very morning in a fresh way that we would be reconnected with you as we seek to draw near and scout the divine. In Jesus' name. Well, it was a long road from Abraham and Sarah to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Their descendants ended up in slavery in Egypt, and Moses, following that little burning bush thing, had to lead them out of Egypt toward the promised land, the land promised to the forefathers. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is instructing the people on how they're to live once they get there. How will they walk through and live in the promised land? Now, I want to read to you the introduction to the passage that we heard today because it sets the scene. Once you enter the land that God, your God, is giving you as an inheritance and take it over and settle down, you're to take some of the first fruits of what you grow in the land that God, your God, is giving you. Put them in a basket and go to the place go to the priest who is there and say, I announce to God, your God, today that I have entered the land that God promised our ancestors that he'd give to them. The priest will take the basket from you and place it on the altar of God, and there in the presence of God, your God, you will recite. Do you hear how often it's not just God, but your God? And then we read the rest of the passage that we heard today. There's to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a, a time where they've settled into the land, they've unpacked the boxes, they've planted the first crop, they've harvested, they now have the first fruits, and they're saying, thank you. They're remembering that without God, none of it would have been possible. His protection, his provision, his leading, his guiding, from a desert into a land flowing with milk and honey. And this was to rep be repeated every single year. Now, I said the land flowing with milk and honey, and I want to focus on that for just a minute because the land itself is very significant. If you remember back in Numbers, we read that Moses sent Joshua and Caleb and ten other spies into Canaan when they're on the outer edges. And he said, go into the land and see what you see. Come back your report. And so they came back with a stick with this amazing cluster of grapes, and they said, indeed, it is a land full of luscious fruit, of incredible vegetables, a land flowing with milk and honey. Land flowing with milk and honey. Now, Margaret asked a question in Scouting the Divine that I've wanted to ask God since I read this as a little whippersnapper. And that is, what does it mean to have a land flowing with milk and honey? What does that look like? I mean, are the streets sort of have this flowing stuff? What, what does it mean to have a land flowing with milk and honey? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I have an answer. I don't have time to tell you the whole story of her experience and how he illustrated the answer, but here's an abbreviated explanation. The beekeeper Margaret visited understood the importance of bees in the ecosystem. Now, you may think bees are your enemies, especially if you're allergic, but they're not. They're critical to our food source, to our very lives, because they pollinate a significant portion of the fruits and vegetables 
We live in California. Without bees, we wouldn't have avocados. I mean, seriously, do we want life without avocados? And so bees fulfill a very specific key function in a complex system. And in the hive, every bee has its own special job. I can't take the time to tell you all about it, but it's fascinating to read the book. Each bee is created with a job to do. And as they do that job, sweetness abounds because honey is created. And she draws parallels with the local church. As each of us does our part in the body that we too were created to do, sweetness abounds in the world around us. This directly affects the land's ability to flow with milk and honey. If the bees were not doing the pollination, it wouldn't happen. In order for a land to overflow with milk and honey, it means that every living thing in the land is living in balance. The animals, the plants, the cows, the bees, they're all fulfilling their proper role, but nature is doing its part too. The snows come at the right time. They're not too heavy. They're not too light. They're not too early. They're not too late. The summer's hot, but not too hot. It has enough dryness, enough rain, so that everything thrives. Everything works in its proper order. And what's the result? You get a land flowing with milk and honey. No wonder Moses said to the people, give thanksgiving. This is a promised land. But don't miss the other part of the offering. As the priests placed the baskets on the altar, they were told to recount the story. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went to Egypt, and he so sojourned there, and so forth and so on. They retell the story, and they are in so doing rejoicing and celebrating all the good things that God, your God, our God, has given to you and your family. Oh, that we would do that, not just on an annual basis, but a daily basis. When was the last time you sat down and you thought not about the problems and the challenges and the to-do list, but just sat and said, my gosh, I know they're rough times, but God has done so much, given so much, provided so much. God, your God, my God. So the message of this passage is that the Israelites needed to always remember the story, who God was, that he had delivered them from bondage, that he was guiding them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that he, of course, created. This is actually an ancient form of liturgy. They go, they present the first fruits, and then they recite the same thing over and over together as a people year after year. It's one of the earliest creeds, scholars tell us. The offering, the liturgy, the creed are designed to help Israel remember the story, claim the promises, and live lives marked by thanksgiving as their response to God. God is calling Israel, and of course us, to practice a discipline that will help us take hold and live into the inheritance. Water break. Well, the problem, of course, 
He said, Israel didn't do so well with the remembering part. You know the story. They sort of squandered the inheritance. They didn't live into the promise. Time and time again, they turned away. They walked away. They consistently forgot the story and drifted into disobedience and even complacency. I'm sure they still recited that creed. They walked through that liturgy, but it had become rote. So what next in the story? Let's skip ahead a few chapters, and we have Jesus who's come on the scene. And we heard in the passage read today in Luke, which opens right after Jesus' baptism, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the desert where he stayed for 40 days and was tempted and tested by the devil. Now, I could spend a whole message time focusing on why did the Spirit lead him so he could encounter Satan? The short answer is because we do every day. And he had to overcome for us what we could not overcome on our own. He was tempted in the desert to fulfill his own physical needs and desires. You ever tempted to do that? He was fasted and he had hungered. Next, he was tempted to grasp worldly power, position. Ever been tempted to do that? And finally, he was tempted to test God, and we've all done that. I want to read from InterVarsity Press's commentary on Luke because I believe it provides some valuable insight. Most lives have a moment of truth, a crossroads where one's mettle is tested and one's character emerges. In such moments, the ethical options stand out starkly, and the choice that is made reveals on which road a person is traveling. Satan's temptation of Jesus is such a moment for the recently anointed son. How is the beloved son going to carry out his task? His choices reveal his commitment and also point to the road of faithfulness and dependence that disciples, you and I, should travel. Note the powerful way Jesus combated Satan. What did he use? Come on, I, I know you were sitting here. What did he use? Scripture. He used the very words of God, the story, to say no to temptation, to overcome it. But what's more intriguing is the choice of the passages. They're all from Deuteronomy. Jesus, a Jew, knew his Torah. He knew the story. He was well-versed in the traditions and the liturgy and the creed. And he used the story and all the disciplines he had learned as a faithful Jew to overcome temptation. He set the path and the model and the method for us. He was also painfully aware that Israel had missed the mark, had failed, when they had been called to choose life or death, they had in fact chosen death because they weren't walking in obedience. Jesus knew it and got it because that's why he had come. That's why the Father had sent him. He had come to fulfill what Israel could not fulfill in their own power. Not through the law, not through the liturgy, not through the creed. It could be fulfilled only through the cross. So what does his temptation teach us? It's that training is essential for the Christian journey. Todd talked about this on Wednesday night. 
the more we immerse ourselves in the story, the more we can recognize what is counterfeit. The more we know the real thing, the more we can spot the false thing. I heard a profound line in a TV show last night. I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, you know, I've got a witness to protect. Camouflage is nature's craftiest trick. Let me say that one more time. Camouflage is nature's craftiest trick. Well, I think the camouflage of temptation is the biggest barrier we have in seeking to live into who God created us to be. We seek momentary gratification of serving self or acquiring things or stepping on people to reach position rather than looking for eternal significance through serving others. Jesus' example in the desert in successfully overcoming temptation is the model for us. He knew the difference, you see, between the real thing and the camouflage. He was equipped and trained to desire the path of righteousness. And he knew the cost of giving way to temptation because he had to give his very life to overcome our sin, to pay the price for us, to redeem us. Now, I'm going to reference a different passage from Romans, from the 10th chapter, so you don't have it in front of me, but bear with me. It's, it's fairly short. Romans 10, beginning at the fourth verse. The earlier revelation is intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. All the stuff that had gone before was setting the scene for Jesus. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. We're going to fail at that. Take it to the bank. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a completely different story. No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. So what exactly was Moses saying? The word that saves us is right here. As near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest, it's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God, Jesus is my master. Embracing body and soul, God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. The same power for us. You're simply calling out to God. You're not doing anything. You're trusting him to do it for you. That, brothers and sisters, is salvation. No one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. And it goes on to say this is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. This passage brings the story full circle. It harkens back to Moses and the law, but Paul makes it clear that salvation comes from Christ alone. It's a true faith born in the mind, in the heart, and is given life through the spoken word by a profession. I believe, Lord, Jesus is my master. 
I'm not doing anything. I'm receiving everything. And it's for everyone, no longer limited. The theme of these three passages is a key word to the Christian life. And I believe I talked about this the last time I was with you, which was the first Sunday in Advent. I don't know what this is with my doing the first Sundays of. But it's transformation. The key to everything is allowing God to transform us. I want to be clear. This transformation is not like God pulling us like a rabbit out of a hat and going, poof, you've made it. You're done. You're perfect. You'll never sin again. Did you experience salvation that way? When you made that profession of faith and said, Jesus is my master, was it all right? You never struggled again. You never sinned again. You were never tempted again. Well, if that was true for you, Ellis is nodding his head. I know better, but I'd like to talk to you later. Uh, (laughs) We still struggle. We still encounter challenge. We still fall on our faces. Yet in the moment of belief and profession, we're forgiven and we are saved. We are made a new creation, no longer a creation of God, but a child of God. The transformation of living into this new Cynthia or this new Dottie or this new Paul is a daily progression. Day by day, the Bible promises us, we are changed from glory unto glory. What a beautiful picture. Molded and shaped into instruments for a noble purpose. Now, I want to remind you that this happens from the inside out. Sometimes we get so busy after professing and doing stuff to try to show how holy and saved we are that we completely miss the point, not to mention the mark. It's from the inside out. How many of you have ever done a fast, like a cleansing fast? You want to kind of get rid of the sugar and the impurities. What happens when you do that? You're being cleansed from the inside out, but if you stay on it long enough and you wash through those impurities, you become transformed on the outside. The skin changes. You Actually, you get a few zits at first because all the toxins are popping out, and then it smooths up. Well, I mean, I do. It smooths over, and you have this beautiful, glowing skin. Your energy increases. Your mind can focus better. There's a transformation from the inside out. That's what sanctification is. Think of a pregnant woman from, from something microscopic. A life grows day by day, and the woman's body changes from the inside out until that life is delivered. That is sanctification. How do we live into it? It's a yielding. We hate the word, I know, submission, but that's what it's about. Let go and let God was the 60s. I wasn't old enough to know that then, but I've heard that people said, let go and let God. (laughs) So the lectionary reading in Romans takes us to a response. It's not in the passage that was assigned for today, but I want to read from Romans 10, 14. When we've made that profession of faith, what's next? If salvation is offered to Jews and Gentiles alike, what's next? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? 
And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The proclamation of the gospel is the good news. But we have to understand that it's a blend of word and deed. Otherwise, it's a bird trying to fly with one wing. The wings of the bird are word and deed. The deed part, the doing, springs from that transformed heart, remember, from the inside out. You can't will yourself into doing it. Maybe for a while, but not day in, not day out, not forever. We don't try to do good. Rather, we ask God to help us want to do good, to tear down the barriers of us and them, to desire what's best for others, for the haves and the have-nots, and to recognize that we are all needy and all broken and all poor on some level, and that only through Christ's blood are we made new. And then we begin to see not them and us, but simply us brothers and sisters who want to serve one another in genuine love, compassion, and acceptance. Okay, you know my next question. I've laid the groundwork, but the real point is, so what? What does it mean for us sitting here today, the first Sunday of Lent, 2010? As I said, Todd invited us in Ash Wednesday to observe a holy Lent, not through striving or trying, but through training. The word Lent literally means lengthen, that is, stretch us in our faith. And I want to suggest that we approach the training and the stretching, the preparation through scouting the divine, to seek and find and respond to the Lord in mind, heart, and action. What would it look like? First, connect with God in a fresh way in our own day-to-day context. Read the Bible not trying to wear your theological lens, but rather the eyes of faith with a sense of anticipation and a deep desire to relate to him and meet him and commune with him. Choose to be in training. It is a choice. Choose to be the bee God has created you to be in that hive, to fulfill your and my unique call and role. Joyfully engaging in a training program and living into our new identity moment by moment. Three, ask him to change our ought-tos to our want-tos. You see, we all know, really, as Christians, or just as human beings, you have a sense of right and wrong. We know what we ought to do, but we do what we want to do. Sooner or later, we do what we want to do. And so we ask God to transform us from the inside out to change our oughtas to our wannas. Retell the story. It helps us remember. It helps it come alive for others. It proclaims the good news. It gives us beautiful feet as we give good news to those who are lost and alone and broken. Seek to practice and live a transparent faith. Tell it like it is. Be real. It's lived out in what we do and what we say. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the people of Holy Trinity are called to truly be a church for the sake of others, to be committed to be good neighbors through an adventure of living out compassion, that we can choose to be a church on mission in this city to reclaim God's heart for compassion and justice. And we can choose an opportunity today 
and in the days to come to reflect and think about our lives, where we've indulged in a tendency to look after ourselves first, where we've fallen into the temptation to put others down so we can advance and then call it healthy competition. Above all, perhaps, failing to appreciate the nature of our relationship with God and the incredible freedom and dignity he's given us. We're a consumer society, aren't we? And so we can fall into the trap of treating God and neighbors as consumables or disposables. But there's another equal temptation, and that's the temptation to see Lynn as a reminder of just how worthless we are. I'm a worm and no woman. To focus on everything we do wrong, and that is just as negative, just as full of death. Jesus taught us how to overcome temptation, and we can draw on the strength of transformation during Lent. And so, as we walk through Lent, will we scout the divine? Yes, we'll have one eye on Easter, because we know what's coming. It's Good Friday, but Sunday's coming. But we walk through the rhythms and the patterns that will unfold in the next few days, the next weeks leading to Easter. And we respond in that time. Respond to what he has done and all he has yet to do. Because that's what divine scouts do. And so let's do it. Father God, I give you praise and thanksgiving that you do indeed offer transformation. And I pray that you would so mold and shape us that we will draw so close to you, sitting on your very lap on the throne of grace and soaking up your love, your protection, your grace, but that we would not hold it simply for ourselves, but that we would, after having scouted the divine, go forward into all the world, proclaiming in word and deed who you are and what you have done to the very ends of the earth and the end of time. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www dot myholytrinitychurch dot com